0: Well, Happy New Year, Bethel. Happy New Year to you. If you all are doing well this morning, here we are. It's a new year. We've made it through 2010. And we've also most made it through this most recent Christmas holiday. And I don't know about you, it feels to me a little bit sad. But it also feels kind of nice. You know, the holidays are fun, aren't they? But they are also just such a busy, stress-filled time, aren't they? And I don't know about you, but during the holidays, I feel like I am operating somewhat on uh, triage mode. I have like just tunnel vision, and I'm moving from one urgent task to the next. I'm just singularly focused on trying to get to, get through the Christmas time season. Can you relate? You understand what that's like? But now, now that's pretty much behind us, and I think we can begin to breathe a little bit easier. And uh, all those urgent needs, they're pretty much wrapped up. And we can have, I think, to begin to have a little bit longer view of things. And with the onset of a new year, I think we can begin to think and plan and wonder, you know, what will this next year hold? And for Jessica and I, my wife, we, this next year will certainly hold many changes. And one of them will be actually a pretty big paradigm change for us. Currently, we have two daughters. Elena is four and a half and Liana is two and a half. But if you see my wife walking around recently, it doesn't take you very long to discern that our family will soon be growing again. And we will be expecting our third child to be born in about three months now. And of course, moving from two to three children, uh, this will be a paradigm change for us. Now, as we think about this change, some of you have been very helpful to us. And have said, oh, don't worry about it. It's going to be a breeze. It was fine for us. We added our third kid. No, no worries. Others of you have been much less helpful. <laughs> and, and have gone to great extent to paint how, how this picture of total Armageddon is going to soon be unleashed upon our household. And so but really this paradigm change of moving from two to three kids is not what's got us thinking about most in this next year. It's that we recently discovered that this new little baby that is coming is a boy. Yeah, I'm excited for that. And let, let me tell you, no one is more happy about that news than I am. You see the ratio in our home, it was going to be either four to one or three to two. And clearly one set of odds is preferable. You know, I'm personally very excited to very soon have some male company in our home. In fact, just this Christmas, I thought to myself as I walked through the toy store, if I have to go down another pink doll aisle one more time, and I'd walk past those boy aisles with those cool-looking toys down there, and I'd just glance down there with envy. And I, you know, I'd say to my wife, please, can't we just buy some Transformers or something? I'm sure my daughter would love to play with Optimus Prime. Or what about a Nerf gun? Something violent. Instead, we're, we're just getting princess dress-up gowns and pretend makeup and, and pretend tea party sets that I know I'm going to have to sit there and drink pretend tea with my pinky up. I cannot wait for male-oriented Christmas shopping. Having a boy will certainly bring all sorts of changes into our home. And and in truth, we're we're a little bit nervous for it. Because it's like, you know, we kind of know how to do the little girl thing. Kind of got the little girl thing a little bit figured out. But boys, they're a different beast entirely. They are a completely different thing. And that's true. Boys and girls, they have a few things in common. They both breathe. They both eat. They both get rid of waste. Although, they do that differently, even and so we're, they, boys and girls, they are vastly different. We are in for a big paradigm change this year with our growing family. And all of us, all of us face paradigm changes from time to time in our family with children or in-laws coming in or whatever, or work, your job responsibility changes, paradigm changes with how you evaluate life or measure success as you grow older, your worldview changes, sometimes as you learn and grow as a Christian, your, your theology, your thinking changes. But all of these little paradigm changes we experience throughout life, they're infinitesimal compared to a wonderful, glorious paradigm change that God initiated 2,000 years ago. And I want to take you to a text this morning that I believe demonstrates history's greatest paradigm change in dramatic fashion. And so please open your Bibles with me to John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, look off somebody who does because I want you to see this is not coming from me, this is coming from God's Word directly. In this chapter, John chapter 3, it is all about paradigm changes. Now John 3 is most known for verse 16, that glorious verse that says, For God so loved the world... That he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is likely the most quoted verse in the entire uh, Bible. Certainly the New Testament. And yet despite its prominence, I suggest to you that this verse is often so dramatically underappreciated. The richness and depth of it is incredible. And it describes a historical paradigm change that is nothing less than earth shattering. And to see this, we have to understand this verse in its context. And to that end, let's begin reading and Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe? If I tell you of heavenly things, no one has ascended into heaven except you who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What we have here is essentially a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a very prominent man in the Jewish world. He was a Pharisee, which by itself made him a person of great prominence. But he was not just any Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Verse 1 says that he was a ruler of the Jews. He was a member that that. He was a part of this Supreme Council. Judaism, which was comprised of about 70 men who were trained scribes and Pharisees. And all of these guys, they were very well educated. It is likely that they were all very well politically connected. And this group functioned as a legislature, executive branch, judicial system, and theology school all in one. And together they made laws, administered justice, and they uh, answered theological questions for the Jewish community. And it was the Sanhedrin who would eventually try Jesus and send him to Pilate. Members of this ruling body were viewed by the Jewish people actually somewhat as aristocrats and granted incredible privilege and respect. And so Nicodemus, he was no ordinary Pharisee. He was a man of great prominence, great influence, great authority. And if being on the Sanhedrin wasn't enough, Nicodemus might have even had a special place on this supreme ruling body. In verse 10, Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. While we cannot be certain what this means, it seems to imply that Nicodemus actually had, uh, in some way, a position of being a head teacher on the Sanhedrin. He was essentially the academic dean of the entire Jewish world, responsible for all matters of theology and doctrine in Israel. And so he was certainly no young, brash Pharisee. He was an older, wiser, well-connected, politically powerful, incredibly educated man. To draw a modern analogy, Nicodemus's role was probably loosely similar to the uh, U.S. Secretary of the Department of Education. So he was, in fact, a bigwig indeed. He was undoubtedly an intellectual heavyweight, particularly in matters of theology. And so what we have here is truly, in this text, a, a, a theological clash of the titans debate. Of course, we know that only one man in this dialogue is a true titan, and that the other is a mere ant by comparison. But, of course, among all the ants that Jesus interacted with, Nicodemus was certainly one of the biggest of them. And being an important Jewish authority, Nicodemus surely approached life with a traditional Jewish paradigm. And so let me take a few moments now to explain the theological paradigm of the day. It's a paradigm that is actually, I think, still alive today in churches, Christian churches, sometimes entire denominations. It's a paradigm that still has hold over people, probably many people here right now. But it's a paradigm that Jesus is about to turn completely upside down. And there are many parts to Nicodemus's paradigm, but let me highlight four. And then we will see how each of these are challenged by Jesus in this conversation. First point of, of this paradigm would be this, that God is growing his kingdom on earth through the Jewish people. Now, the Jewish people, they rightly believe that they are God's chosen people. Of course, this is the story of the Old Testament. How God chose Abraham and promised to make a great nation out of him. Whose inhabitants, his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand in the seashore. And this proved to be true. The Israelite nation multiplied. And after a period of exile in Egypt, God brought them into the promised land, the holy land, where he established them, a wonderful nation. The height of its glory occurred in the reigns of King David and Solomon. But quickly, after that time, things went downhill. And Israel experienced a steady decay in its prominence. It split into two nations, both of which were eventually carried off into captivity in Babylon. While the Jewish people eventually returned to the promised land and to Jerusalem, they were always a shadow of the splendor that they once had. People would often say, oh, do you remember the times of David? And in Jesus' time, they were a marginally oppressed people under the rule of the Roman government. And still, though, Nicodemus and devout Jews, they had faith in God, and they believed that the nation of Israel was synonymous with the kingdom of God and that God's kingdom would grow here on earth, particularly through the liberation and through the expansion of the Jewish nation. So God was growing his kingdom on earth through the Jewish people. This was the first key element of Nicodemus's theological paradigm, which was about to be totally destroyed. And the second is this. The kingdom is a human institution and is presently centered around the temple. The kingdom of God, according to Nicodemus, was led by political and priestly orders so that professional ministers, the Levite priests, they were the ones who presently administered the kingdom and this was most visibly seen through their worship services and sacrifices taking place in the temple. It was also seen through the role the Sanhedrin played in the Jewish life. But Nicodemus believed that eventually Messiah would come who would renew the throne of David and reestablish Israel as an independent nation, a powerful nation, as the greatest nation on earth. And while this nation, it would have God's incredible blessing, it would be fundamentally led and administered by human beings through human means. The kingdom was a human institution Here's the third element kingdom membership comes through ethnic heritage and strict adherence to the law Now within the jewish culture, it was common to believe that you know i'm okay and part of god's kingdom simply because i'm a jew My ethnic heritage it ensures me a place in god's kingdom I'm fine simply because I identify myself as being jewish I go to the temple twice a year offer a few sacrifices. So of course i'm good with god i'm jewish Kingdom membership was automatically given, in this sense, to the right people. But others had a more rigorous view. That salvation was merit based conditional upon keeping the law and the sacrificial systems. And so kingdom membership, it was hard. It came through much effort and work and striving. And these two competing views produced two different types of people, those who were complacent and apathetic about their spiritual life and those who were ardently zealous and extremely legalistic and they need to follow the law to the letter, a.k.a. the Pharisees. If you think about it, this actually sounds like some Christians today, these two groups of people. And finally, Nicodemus' paradigm believed this, that kingdom members are God's servants who relate to him from a distance through a priestly order. There was no belief that people could intimately relate to God. God was so distant, so removed from wretched sinners. After all, God was in heaven. People were here on earth. Even at the temple, in the most holy place, the place where God immediately dwelled, no one could enter that except one man, the high priest. And even only once a year at that. So there was a fundamental separation between God and his people. The people needed priests to intercede to God for their behalf. They needed human mediators to offer sacrifices and plead for their forgiveness. They could not approach him themselves. God was their king. He was, they were his insignificant subjects. Pawns. Completely subject to his sovereign will with comparatively little personal attention or privilege given to them by the divine. This is the Jewish paradigm. This is the Jewish mindset. Nicodemus was undoubtedly steeped in it. But he wondered how Jesus fit into this paradigm. And so he sought Jesus out. We see in verse 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so Nicodemus knew that there was something special about Jesus. He had heard about all the miraculous things that Jesus was doing. He might have witnessed some himself. He believed that Jesus was genuinely gifted by God. But he wanted to see for himself who this man was. And he wondered, how does Jesus fit into the plan of God? He wanted to see what role Jesus might play in his own paradigm. Perhaps he even wondered if Jesus might be a future member of the Sanhedrin. So this meeting was something of a scouting trip. With political motives. He was a politician after all. But it was also an earnest inquiry into who is this man. See, it seems that Nicodemus' heart in coming to Jesus is genuinely kind and earnest. He addresses Jesus with respect. He calls him rabbi. He states that God is working through Jesus. He seems genuinely mystified, wondering what, what God is doing through Jesus. Nicodemus clearly thinks highly of him. But Nicodemus also views Jesus, certainly, with a degree of skepticism and uncertainty. You see, his visit to Jesus is likely motivated, at least in part, by the events that take place in chapter 2. In chapter 2, what do we see there? We see Jesus entering Jerusalem, going into the temple, and causing a total ruckus. Here in the center of the Jewish world, he makes a massive scene, turns the place into total disarray. He makes a whip, he drives people out of the temple. He, He overturns tables, spilling money all over the floor. This was the place of Nicodemus' authority. And so Nicodemus is probably coming to Jesus to put him in his place. You see, ironically, Nicodemus likely sees himself as an authority figure over Jesus. And he probably thinks he's there to corral a young rogue rabbi into the establishment fold. And so the dialogue begins. And Jesus answers Nicodemus' initial statement with one of his own. He says in verse 3, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot, cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says that a rebirth is necessary to see the kingdom of God. This is somewhat cryptic language. Jesus doesn't go into detail right now to describe it. Instead, he's just kind of throwing something out there. He says, hey, you want to see the kingdom of God? You've got to be born again. Now think how this would have challenged Nicodemus' paradigm. You know, his, in his mind... In his mind, he was already seeing the kingdom of God. It was seen at the temple through the Jewish order. It was seen through the priests administering the sacrifices. Nicodemus was administering the kingdom of God himself as he was part of the Sanhedrin. In Nicodemus' mind, he was well aware of the kingdom of God. He was not a blind to it. He could see it as clearly as he could see the temple mount. So Jesus' words perplexed Nicodemus. Because Jesus said, you cannot, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. It's possible the statement even insulted or irritated Nicodemus. And so Nicodemus countered with this objection. He said in verse 4, he says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus basically says, Jesus, what you're saying its absurd. It's physically impossible. Look at me, I, I can't be born again. I'm too old. I'm too big. I can't re-enter again into my mother's womb. He's, he's pointing out the literal... Absurdity of what Jesus has said, and in doing so, he actually conjures up an image that is very troubling to think about. It's one I would prefer just not to try to illustrate or dwell upon. So let's move on, shall we? But making this objection, you know, Nicodemus he knew better. He knew that Jesus was not speaking of a literal, fleshly rebirth. Figurative language like this it was used all the time. Specifically, language of spiritual rebirth is found in the Old Testament, and Jews use it themselves. Particularly when speaking of how a Gentile, if he wanted to convert to Judaism, would need to be reborn into the Jewish community. And so Nicodemus knew that Jesus was speaking figuratively here. So why this response? Because Nicodemus was on the defensive. And this was the only challenge he could think of to offer in the moment. And because it is likely that he wanted Jesus also actually to just, just expand on what on the statement he threw out there. Explain more of, of what he means by it. Which of course then Jesus is happy to do. See, Jesus then responds to this question. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So here it is. Jesus now begins to challenge the paradigm that Nicodemus holds so dear. He says that in order to be part of God's kingdom, you must be reborn through water and through Spirit. And this is an escalation of what Jesus has previously said. Previously said, hey, hey, you want to see the kingdom, you have to be born again. Now he's saying you want to enter the kingdom, you need to be born again. But what does Jesus mean here? I mean, what does this imagery mean to describe water and spirit? Water imagery is typically used to connote purity or cleansing. And in the Jewish world at this time, there are all sorts of symbolic washings and rituals where they use water to symbolize cleansing from impurities and from sin. And Nicodemus would have certainly been aware of all these and also probably of John the Baptist and of his ministry where he utilized water baptism as a powerful symbol of repentance. And so water symbolized a cleansing from sin and personal repentance. And the spirit imagery here most certainly refers to the spirit of God. Jesus is saying that God's holy Spirit has a direct role to play in bringing about this new birth. So, so Jesus is saying that kingdom membership comes. It comes by the purification of our sin and by a direct, immediate ministry of the Holy Spirit of God in a person's life. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now this is a direct affront to Nicodemus's paradigm. Remember, Nicodemus thought he, he thought that membership in God's kingdom, it came through ethnic heritage. Or by adherence to the law. But now Jesus is saying that induction into the kingdom of God, it does not depend on ethnic heritage or legal obedience. Moreover, it does not depend on the intercession of a human priest on one's behalf. And most amazing of all, God is no longer relating to people from a distance. Instead, he is intimately involved in the process. So for kingdom membership, all that is required is a spiritual cleansing through repentance and an intimate personal work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. Now, before Nicodemus can object and say, but that doesn't fit the accepted paradigm. Jesus goes on and answers Nicodemus' objection before he can make it. In verse 8, he says, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying here that the plan is changing. It is evolving. Just as the wind cannot be controlled or understood by humans, neither can God. Just as the wind blows wherever it pleases, so too are the ways of God. God is doing something, and he is not bound by what you think he ought to do, Nicodemus. He's not bound by your paradigm. In fact, God is changing the paradigm. A new spiritual windstorm is happening. And the kingdom is no longer defined by physical reality or ethnic heritage or human intercession. It is now defined by spiritual rebirth. And that may be mysterious to you, Nicodemus, just like the wind. But God often works in mysterious ways. And Nicodemus responds to this then in verse 9. He simply says, how can these things be? And here we see more confusion by Nicodemus. But even more so, he seems a, a, a bit incredulous. How can these things be? Remember, Nicodemus, he had tremendous authority in matters of theology and doctrine. And in just a few sentences, Jesus has said that all of Nicodemus knows all of it is changing. His entire paradigm is being challenged. His religious expertise is being questioned. And so he responds in this somewhat terse, agitated tone. The temperature in the room now begins to rise, undoubtedly. But to his credit, Nicodemus' response is not like that of so many other Pharisees who had similar interactions with Jesus. Nicodemus does not insult Jesus. He does not declare that he is wrong or should be condemned. Nicodemus knows that there is something true about Jesus. And although in this exchange, Nicodemus, he probably feels at war within himself, within his own pride, because he's like, these things that Jesus is saying, they're not consistent with what I've known, and I've taught my entire life. He still wants to, Jesus to explain what he means. Undoubtedly, so he can evaluate it and discern if this really is, in some way, a movement of God. And so he asks, how can these things be? And so Jesus continues. In verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And now here, Jesus pulls out the direct assault. This is the feisty Jesus coming out again now, just like in the temple. This now becomes a no-holds-barred confrontation. The gloves have come off. And Jesus accuses Nicodemus, and the entire Jewish leadership of being blind to God's true plan. He says, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? We speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus is saying, look, look, we're telling you. I'm telling you how things are, and you are resisting my teaching. He's saying that Nicodemus is failing to listen to God's true witness, who is Jesus. After all, Jesus is the only one who's come from heaven, and therefore the only one who can really know what he's talking about. That's what verse 13 means. So Jesus' point here is that the Jewish leadership is resisting God's true plan. They are so stuck in their way of thinking, in their old paradigm. They refuse to see that the winds are changing. In their pride and in their insolence, they refuse to be humble and to see that God can actually operate outside of the box that they think he fits into. But Jesus isn't done goes on to make another bold statement he says in verse 14 and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life here Jesus is calling to memory a famous moment in Jewish history where when the Jewish people because they were impatient with God were plagued by poisonous snakes these snakes came out and infiltrated the camp and started biting the israelites and they began to die but they repented of their sin and they cried out to god and pleaded for deliverance they said save us from these snakes they cried and so the lord spoke to moses and instructed moses he said make a bronze snake mounted high in a pole lift it up for the people to see and so moses did that and then whenever people were bitten by a snake they would look to the bronze snake high in the pole and they would be healed And now Jesus draws an analogy between that bronze snake and himself. For just as the snake brought deliverance and new life to people, as it was lifted up and as people looked to it, so too will the Son of Man bring spiritual life, rebirth as he is lifted up and looked to in repentance and faith. Jesus is saying that he is the one who is instrumental in bringing about this new paradigm. I'm the means by which the plan changes, Jesus is saying. And in doing so, he lose to how he will be lifted up to death on a cross. So how exactly can we summarize this great paradigm change here? Well, here's an overview of the difference. Let's look again at Nicodemus' paradigm and can now contrast it with the new paradigm that evolved through Jesus' ministry. So instead of growing God's, God growing his kingdom on earth for the Jewish people, God is now, in this new paradigm, growing his kingdom beyond physical constraints. Verse 15 says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In other words, whoever, anyone, can now be a part of God's kingdom. There is no longer a physical constraint to it. There is no longer a a, a size limitation to it. It's not defined by national boundaries or a specific ethnic group. All people everywhere can be a part of God's kingdom. It transcends every tribe and language and people and nation. There is now no consideration given to skin color. There is no consideration given to cultural heritage. There is no consideration given to personal age or accomplishment. The kingdom of God now includes people all over in Europe and America and the Middle East and Asia, Africa, Australia, Russia, China. It includes people who are incredibly wealthy and abysmally poor, the educated and uneducated, the wise and the foolish, the young and the old. The doors of the kingdom are equally open for corporate CEOs and homeless beggars. For people who've lived a life of general moral uprightness and those who have uh, committed woefully grievous, heinous crimes who've fallen on their face in repentance and cried out for a savior. You or I, we have no more special access to the kingdom than tribesmen in Africa or political elites in Washington or hardened criminals in state penitentiaries or professional clergy or prominent religious leaders or our friends in Gary, Indiana, or East Chicago. We have no special privilege over any of them. For God so loved the world that the doors to the kingdom are opened wide for all people everywhere and without prejudice. Oh, that we would model the inclusive, non-prejudicial nature of the kingdom of God ourselves. What a glorious paradigm change this is. But it gets better. Instead of the kingdom being a human institution that is presently centered around the temple, the kingdom is a spiritual reality that is decentralized in the human heart. There's no longer a physical centerpiece to God's kingdom to which we must look. There's no longer a temple or a particular human religious authority that we all must follow. Because the kingdom, the church, it is not a human creation. It is not a man-made organization. It is not a religion per se. It is a spiritual reality that is a movement of God himself. This makes the church the greatest organization, the most incredible institution to have ever exist, because it has a divine origin. It is the only organization on planet earth that is not of human origin. You think you work for a great company? Fine. The church is greater. You think you live in an impressive city? Okay, but you know what? The church is more impressive. You think you root for an amazing sports team? The church is far more amazing. You think you possess some incredible things? The church is far more incredible. The kingdom of God, it is not a mere religion fashioned by human hands. It is a spiritual reality of immense value. And has been purchased through an incredible, truly unfathomable cost. And this thing of great value is not located someplace far away. It is intimately close. In the heart of every person who believes in Christ as their Savior and Lord. Oh, that we would cherish the church and the kingdom of God more than we cherish anything else in this life. That we would be far more excited about God's kingdom than our own. That we would be far more engaged in the work of the kingdom than the work of our own hobbies or our interests. Because God's kingdom, it is far more impressive and then valuable than anything else we could ever pursue. For God so loved the world that He did away with dry religion and created a dynamic, wonderful, spiritual reality which is the church What a glorious paradigm change this is. But it gets better. Instead of kingdom membership coming through ethnic heritage and strict adherence to the law, kingdom membership, it now comes through spiritual rebirth. Not through hereditary lineage, legalistic adherence, not through our works, constant striving to be good, but through water and through spirit, through repentance and humility. And through the Spirit of God, doing a miraculous, transformative work in the human heart. Do you realize how transformative, how liberating, how freeing this is? No longer do people need to feel that they must earn their way into the kingdom. No longer do people need to feel burdened down by a constant checklist of spiritual obligations. No longer must people live in a state of fear or spiritual uncertainty, wondering, am I I good enough? Have I done enough? Membership into God's kingdom is the easiest, freest membership you can ever have. There's no training course to take, no applications to fill out, no dues to pay, no people to impress. The doors to the kingdom are opened wide. For God so loved the world that he made entrance into the kingdom simple and free for everyone. What a glorious paradigm change this is. But it gets better. But it gets better. Instead of kingdom members being God's servants. Who distantly relate to him through priestly order. Kingdom members are God's sons and daughters. Who intimately relate to him. Through the one high priest, Jesus. And this aspect of the paradigm change is staggering. Before this change, people related to God from a distance. As his servants... There was no real relationship. God was something way out there, unapproachable, except under really strict circumstances, and even then, only by a select few. The priests had to intervene on behalf of the people and God. Only they could genuinely approach God, and even then, not in full measure. But then came Jesus, who scripture says became our faithful high priest. As Hebrews 9.12 describes, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And the text goes on, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus himself is the mediator of salvation, not a religious council or a high priest. For there is uh, now one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2.5. And with Jesus as our new high priest comes incredible privilege, a transformative privilege. We're no longer servants or slaves to God. We are granted rights of children. We are His sons and daughters. We are heirs of the kingdom. Romans chapter 8, verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are His children. Of, we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ. An incredible intimacy with God has been established God is no longer a, a distant, otherworldly force who is unapproachable, far away. He is an intimately benevolent Father with whom we can fellowship deeply, and freely, and confidently. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, Hebrew 4.16 says. Our relationship with God, it has been transformed. Because of this change, we have been granted incredible privileges. Not the shallow privileges of a mere servant, but the rich blessings afforded an heir. We exist here on earth not just to serve God, but to richly enjoy our relationship to our heavenly father. And to know that our incredible inheritance awaits us if we persevere to the end. Oh, that we would realize and delight in our freedom to relate to and fellowship with God in such a glorious, intimate, and privileged way. Not to think of Him as someone who is so far distant, but someone to whom we can cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. And to know that He is intimately attentive to our every cry. For God so loved the world that He made it possible for a renewed, intimate relationship with Him. So that people might not just be his subjects, but his sons, his daughters, his heirs. What an incredible paradigm change this is. And so now you can begin to see John 3.16 in all of its richness. At this verse, it, just, it just does not just describe the way to eternal life. It is not just a call to personal conversion and faith. It describes an incredible paradigm change by which God has completely overturned and remade the spiritual economy. That Jesus' mission wasn't just to provide salvation, it was fundamentally to alter history, to usher in a new means of relating to God, to inject incredible spiritual life into the people of God, to bring immense freedom and spiritual confidence to God's people, to open the doors of the kingdom wide so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. This was Jesus' message to Nicodemus. And it is also his message to us. Do you think Nicodemus got it? Do we really get it? Somewhere around here, the conversation with Nicodemus ends. Scripture records no additional questions or comments by Nicodemus. And We are left to wonder just how this conversation ended. You know, was Nicodemus, was he persuaded? Did he leave curious and perplexed? or Was he angry? Offended? We don't know. But we do know that Nicodemus eventually got the paradigm change that Jesus is describing here. In John chapter 7, Nicodemus comes to Jesus' defense when he is before the Sanhedrin. And in John chapter 19, Nicodemus is one of the few people who takes Jesus' body down off of the cross and prepares him for burial. And for a man of his standing to have such close association with a dead body, particularly one of a perceived criminal and blasphemer, indicates that at some point Nicodemus did in fact become a follower of Jesus. He probably left his position within the Sanhedrin and embraced this new paradigm that Jesus introduces to him in this conversation. But undoubtedly, this way of thinking was a struggle for Nicodemus. And I suggest to you that it is still a struggle for us here today. Even today, many people are still stuck in the old paradigm. Even Christians in churches. They subtly think that the kingdom is only open, really, to certain kinds of people. Certain groups of people. We're prejudiced against who we want to see in our church. Especially our own church. We subtly think that the kingdom is really just open to people who are just like us. Really not for everyone. And this prejudice, as deeply buried as it sometimes might be, produces a natural rift. Between black and white communities. Anglo and Latin, rich and poor. We think if people are not like us, then then perhaps we think of them as being second rate in regards to being welcome in the kingdom. God, we wouldn't admit this to others for sure, and, and perhaps not even to ourselves. But could it be true that somewhere, deep within the recesses of our heart, remains some prejudice about who really should be in the kingdom of God? It seems that in the eyes of some ethnic heritage or cultural background is still a factor Similarly, some people continue to think of the church as a religious human institution and not a dynamic work of the spirit It seems as something that I do or participate in the church because of tradition or social acceptance or peer pressure And there is no wonder or awe That distinguishes the church. It is constantly criticized And it is only valued as another work of man rather than the creation of the divine And the church is not given the prominence in one's priorities because it is just seen as another human thing. Others continue to think of salvation with the old paradigm. They might think that they're automatically granted entrance into the kingdom simply because they claim to be Christian. I'll get in because I identify myself as a Christian, they say. When in reality, they're not really one at all because they have not been born again through repentance and the work of the Spirit in their life. Others believe that salvation is merit-based. And they are constantly trying to earn favor with God. They remain fearful that their salvation is not secure. I'm not sure if I'm in, but I'm trying really hard. Finally, many approach God as his servants and not as his sons and daughters. They conceive of God as a distant king rather than an intimately close and benevolent father. And they don't relish in the joys that this relationship can bring so how do we live by this new paradigm How do we overcome the old one let me offer a few suggestions living by this new paradigm first is this be spiritually reborn through faith in jesus perhaps you are one of those people who identifies yourself as a christian but has never experienced the spiritual rebirth that jesus is talking about here have you experienced this new birth Jesus has said that it requires being born of water and the spirit. In other words, you first must repent of your rebellion against God and ask that he would cleanse you from your sin. And then you need to invite the spirit to transform your life and your heart from the inside out. This happens as you do what verses 15 and 16 say. That if you believe in Jesus, you will have eternal life and be born again. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to look to him as the Israelites looked to the bronze snake. It means that you look to Jesus as a solution for your spiritual condition. You see Christ's death on the cross as the only sufficient means by which you may be saved. And you embrace that truth in your heart. And you plead to him to rescue you from yourself. You ask the spirit to transform you from the inside out. Do this with a genuine and earnest heart and God will produce a spiritual rebirth in you. Perhaps this will be the day that you experience that spiritual rebirth as always There will be people here at the front of the of the of the room here at the end of the service that will be more than happy to talk with you to pray with you So come find a prayer counselor afterwards if you'd like counsel on this Or just talk to a friend or the person sitting next to you Don't delay Wouldn't it be wonderful to start the new year with a new birth Will you make the choice to believe jesus today? Just like nicodemus eventually did So be spiritually reborn as a start. Here's another one. Be excited about the church. Be excited about it. Now we know we're not a perfect church here. There's no such thing as a perfect church to the side of heaven. But don't let the failings and shortcomings of the leaders here rob you of your joy of being part of God's great work. Don't be constantly critical. Cherish God's people. Delight in the corporate worship we have. Prioritizing, prioritize fellowshipping with other believers here. Get involved. Use your gifts to serve our congregation and our community. Be excited about our church, the church in general, this church here, if this is your church, do these things we talk about all the time, exalt, experience, engage, come to worship, be in a small group, serve. Why? Why are these things important? Because the church is an incredible thing. It is the most incredible thing. Every other human thing pales in comparison. Make sure that your priorities in this new year reflect this. Next, be enthusiastic about ethnic and cultural diversity. Bethel, this may be one of our biggest challenges in the year ahead. Increasingly, the leadership here wants our church to reflect the diversity of our region. But that is not going to happen if we are not genuinely earnest and enthusiastic about people about people attending here from different cultures, ethnicities, social positions. Nor is it going to happen if... We ourselves, we isolate our relationships just so that we only befriend people who are just like we are. The kingdom of God is far broader and far wider than people just like you, people just like me. So get a, car, a heart for the kingdom's intended diversity. And do what you can to pursue that in your own life. Also, be free from the chains of legalism. Now, so much can be said on this point. As the Christian culture, particularly in this region here, really struggles with legalism. But we need to take to heart that kingdom membership is not merited to us by works. We need to realize that the atonement of Jesus is fully sufficient, that Jesus has paid it all, that I cannot do anything else to atone for my sins. There is nothing I can do to earn favor in the eyes of God. It is by grace I have been saved through faith, not works. It is a gift of God so that no one may boast, Ephesians says. The cause of legalism is always a belief that Christ's sacrifice is not enough. That I need to do something else to secure salvation. That, how wrong that is. How he is sufficient. He has paid it all. We need to truly get this. And when we too, we can experience freedom from legalism. And also this next point, we can be confident in our salvation. If you are born again, you should have no fear about your eternal destiny. You can't be unborn. The transformation that the Spirit has done in your heart and your life, it is sufficient. To doubt it is to really doubt the power of God. If you've been born again, the same power that spoke the universe into existence has secured your salvation. And if you cannot believe in that power, what can you believe in? Your own? Know that God is able to save you completely. And that He will secure your salvation until the day of Christ Jesus. And finally... Be delighted in your privileged position and be consumed with your spiritual relationship. Relish in the fact that you are a child of God. Don't see yourself merely as a servant of a far removed and distant king. If you've been spiritually reborn, you are an heir to a glorious kingdom and you have intimate access to the God of the universe. Delight in this. And be consumed with your spiritual relationship with God. Strive in the coming days, months, the year to have much more fervent times of prayer. To meditate deeply on the pages of God's word. To dwell richly upon your privileged position and the hope that you have in Christ and find joy in the fact that you can have the most intimate relationship with the greatest person you will ever know. God loves the world so very much. God loves you so very much that he sent his son to become a baby who would grow up into a man who would die on a cross so that this paradigm change might happen. That through Jesus, he would completely transform the spiritual economy so that you and I might have these wonderful, tremendous privileges. It would be a terrible shame to waste them. Wouldn't it? So in this coming year, let's be the church as God intends it to be. Let's be Christians as God intends us to be. Not stuck in this woefully insufficient old paradigm, but embracing the glorious, tremendous, beautiful new paradigm that Christ has brought to us spring